0: The great lie about California is that there's not enough water. There is enough water. There there is enough water. If you drive up and down the San Joaquin Valley, you'll see farmers with big signs out by the highway that will say Congress created drought, government created drought.
1: This is Monica Perez here with our returning guest, such an interesting person and courageous, knowledgeable lawyer, uh, rec- until recently in Northern California, but he is going to tell us about what he is doing lately and also give me some very interesting history about California. You know how I I just am worried about the weather and the droughts, and I just feel like there's some uh, let's just say fuckery about, (laughs) let me, let's pick his brain. You know him. You love him. Anthony Raimondo. Hello, Anthony. How are you?
0: I'm well. How are you?
1: Fine. Thank you. And I was, we were just talking before the, we went live is that I decided to, I mean, I have no choice, but to hunker down in California, bought a house in the San Gabriel Valley, which what people tell me Uh, you can grow anything here. Like it's paradise on earth. And I noticed immediately, now you don't have to opine on this, but they spray stuff in the air and it changes the weather. And the weather, this drought that's been going on ever since I've been here, it just, it smacks of uh, artificiality. I'm not going to ask you to opine on that if you don't want to, but I'm just saying it seems to me that there are efforts to not allow us to grow, not allow us to experience the abundance and the self-sufficiency we could get from our own yards here in California. So I'm super interested in your experience, but first, could you give us a little bit of background, just a little bit of background on, you know, how we started talking, but more like what you're doing right now and why this is interesting to you?
0: Well, um, so I've been practicing law, specializing in agriculture in California for almost 25 years. Um a year ago, I relocated to the Southern Oregon coast to uh, an agricultural region. Uh, We have a lot of small farms here, family cattle farmers, dairy farmers, which is very much the type of folks that I have been representing in California. Um, So I'm actually expecting any day now to get approval from the Oregon Supreme Court for my license here. And I've already got some things that Um, some folks want me to kind of jump in the middle of, which is, it's kind of exciting for me because it's all fresh and new up here. It's a different sort of law and a little bit different wrinkles on the issues. Um, But I am continuing to work with farmers in California. And um, part of what we're going to talk about today is the way that I have seen the industry transformed over the last 20 plus years that I've been involved. And I know it started before my involvement, but this is really based on what, what I've seen. Um, to transform the industry from privately held, family owned businesses, small and large, to uh, an industry that is dominated by billionaires, corporate investors, real estate investment trusts, uh, foreign investors, but no longer farmers owning and operating their farms, finance interests owning and operating those farms. And many of these farmers. The newer generation have gone from being farm owners to being employees of those financial interests that have been taking over the industry. And I think this has been, I call it a land grab, and we'll get into the details of it. But I think through a combination of environmental policy, water policy, labor policy, and other regulatory policies, they have increasingly made it more and more difficult for those family farms to stay in business. Uh, They've made it unappealing for the younger generation to follow, you know, their their fathers into the, the operation of the farm, which is the way it used to go with these generational farmers. So more and more, we see that younger generation stepping away from agriculture and that older generation finding the whole thing to be too much of a headache, in some cases entirely unprofitable or not profitable enough to justify, you know, the stress and the heartache that often goes along with being a farmer. Um, And so folks are selling land for less than it would probably otherwise be worth. So uh, it is a land grab designed to allow those at the top of the heap financially and politically to acquire land that has been held by generational farming families at less than actual value, partially by deliberately devaluing that land by cutting off water, by burdensome regulations by high labor costs and a variety of other things.
1: Uh, That's interesting now because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about the Maui fires. And I don't know if you've been following that at all, but people really suspect that this, I mean, I have noticed in California without a doubt, like to the point that there were arrests, they said the same thing in Australia, that fires are started. These fires, there was one um, couple of years ago, where there uh, a regular person driving along started taking video of a garbage truck, a municipal garbage truck, full of burning fire, burning something or other, trash, dumping the trash into like a field full of like highly flammable brush or whatever. And there was a huge wildfire after that. And I, I had already suspected these things were started on purpose, but that's what people are saying about Maui. And the point that I'm making is that they're suspecting that the reason would be uh, a land grab and that it is multifaceted, like the the different approaches, the policies that they're uh, employing to try to get that land grab. And they're already showing their hand, like saying, like, we are ready to buy this land. So I think it's on top of people's mind how, you know, how the government can be co-opted by the private interests to, um, to, to get people's land without having to like overtly call it eminent domain, which would be too obvious. So can you, so tell us like this, uh, you know, just from the beginning, what do you think, um, you know, where did it all start? Cause I know that you, you had said that this, you, you think that incredible inroads have been made towards this in the past 10 years. So is it, did it is it just 10 years old? Like when did it start?
0: It's certainly been accelerating. Um, so let me rewind the tape to when I first got into the industry around 2000, 2001. And at that time, we'll use the San Joaquin Valley as an example, because that's where I was based, even though I was representing farmers all over the state. This is the most productive agricultural region in the entire world. And, you know, a lot of folks look at farming like, oh, they get all these subsidies and things like that. There are very little crop subsidies in regions like the San Joaquin Valley and the Salinas Valley, because historically the things that they're growing, fresh fruit and produce, are high margin crops, high profit crops. They don't need subsidies. You see some subsidies in California in the cotton industry, but the fresh fruits, produce, salad crops, these are not subsidized crops. These are high margin crops. So historically, and when I got involved, these were all privately held companies mostly owned by families that were multi-generation farmers our California ag industry. You see a lot of um, people that came West early on and started farming here. You have dust bowl refugees who came out here and made something of themselves out of the land. A lot of immigrants, for example, in our dairy industry, we have a lot of Portuguese immigrants. We have Italian immigrants. We have Dutch immigrants um, who formed the backbone of California's dairy industry, which 99.9% family farms. Um, The most recent estimate that I saw, California is the number one agricultural state in the nation. The most recent estimate I saw, $51.1 billion cash receipts annually from agricultural commodities in California. That's a lot of money. When I got into this industry there were I think if if the number's not zero it's very close to zero publicly traded companies and I believe what happened was over time the money guys you know the Wall Street guys the hedge fund guys they're looking at this industry that in one state is, is represents 51 billion dollars in cash receipts and they want in But if they're privately held, family-owned companies, there is no way in.
1: So one one thing I'm thinking is when you have that that kind of – in any industry, you could have competition that will drive down profitability and people can't make any money. However, you're talking about a region that obviously is finite, finite amount of land, and if – the value is in the land. So you can't, there are no more entrants. It's a, it's a barrier to entry that land is finite. So the people who own the land, probably unlike the farmers that you hear about in the Dust Bowl or in other places in the country have their ups and downs. The farmers here probably, especially if they're multi-generational could uh, you know, make be totally self sufficient. You said there's no subsidies. They probably don't even really need loans or anything because they have this barrier to entry, which is they own the land, all the values in the land.
0: Yeah, well, it's a little more complicated than that because even in high value crops, farmers always need access to banking and lending because there's tremendous upfront cost in farming. You've got to plant, you've got to grow, and there's no revenue until you harvest. So there is a cycle of lending and paying back. And as with any market-based commodity, there's good years and bad years. There's always a lot of risk in farming, not the least of which is from weather. Like The, the recent rain that, that happened from right. the tropical storm, although you know, damage in places like urban areas of Los Angeles was pretty limited, the table grape harvest was destroyed.
1: Oh, yeah. We have a little vineyard in this house, and my husband's like, whatever. <laughs> the
0: fresh, fresh market tomatoes, devastated by that rain. Wow. So, you know, farmers farming is a hard business because they're always at the whims of mother nature and the weather and God, right? I mean,
1: well, do you believe that weather can be manipulated? I mean, are you aware that it can be manipulated? Do you think it is? It definitely can be. They're doing it in China and India and admitting it.
0: Let me put it this way. I've been interested in a lot of the chemtrail theories for a long time. Especially, you know, where I live now, we're we're off the beaten path away from everything. And you don't see the spraying here. Whereas when I lived in the San Joaquin Valley, the sky is crisscrossed with these long streams.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's obvious and it wasn't like that 50 years ago. Well,
0: it's funny because my, my, my wife and I had this conversation recently. And when we started off, she thought I was crazy talking about them spraying stuff in the air. My husband too. And then I said to her, I said, wait a minute, Think about the aviation technology that we have, and the things that we know that the government does. Can you imagine that it's even possible that they're not experimenting with spraying stuff in the air to affect the weather? And that kind of stopped her in her tracks. And then she she's all in. she went through an internet rabbit hole and <laughs> is kind of all in on the idea that this is that that this is going on now.
1: Yeah, here it's just so obvious. You can just see it with your eyes, and I think the experimental phase is over. I mean, they know what they're doing, but you can just see it. You can see it changes the weather. It absolutely changes. They say that rain is coming. They say you can take pictures of it when it's against the backdrop of a cloud. It'll be black sometimes. So anyway,
0: well, on. and I, tra- <laughs> I travel a lot by car because I don't like to fly, and, I, and I've been driving all over California for my work for a couple of decades now, and you know you see weird cloud formations that look extremely unnatural that, you know, there's stuff that I see now that 10 years ago I didn't see. Right. So I don't know hundred percent how adept they are at it, but I know they're getting better at it. And I a hundred percent believe that, that they're doing it. Um, the one thing that weighs against it, to be honest with you, is I've seen some, some data that rainfall patterns and ca- patterns in California have not really changed dramatically. Really? Over the last century. It's really interesting that
1: Because I've lived here a few times now and I feel like it is just drier than ever.
0: It's always been a cycle of drought and flood, drought and flood, drought and flood. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Southern California and you know, I remember 1983 when it rained like crazy, they had to close schools, there was flooding everywhere, but that before that we had years of drought where, you know, the famous images of kids, like uh, people had to drain their swimming pools and kids skateboarding in the empty swimming pool. (laughs) So this, this sort of like feast or famine with water in California has been a long time issue. And you can even go back. There are famous, famous photographs and images of when Leland Stanford was, became governor, they had to take him to his inauguration in a rowboat because Sacramento was flooded. What? Yeah, you should look that up.
1: Oh, I can't believe I I missed that. It wasn't in the lore.
0: The entire Central Valley of California uh, flooded. It was like in the late 1800s. Um, And so the story of California water is about moving water around. I mean, I was taught as a kid, they were proud of it back then, but I was taught as a kid that California's water infrastructure was literally the eighth wonder of the world, that the aqueduct was this amazing feat of engineering and the dams were an amazing feat of engineering because historically Northern California has had more water than it needs in flooding, and Southern California has not had enough water. And then in the middle, we have the San Joaquin Valley, which is the watershed for the Sierra Nevada Mountains, oh, which get vast volumes of snow. So when people first came west, when you read the depictions of when people first came west, the they described the San Joaquin Valley in as a swamp filled with mosquitoes. Tulare Tulare Lake, which actually is filled right now for the first time in a long time. You may have seen some of the news coverage. I know it's been in the LA Times. Tulare Lake was the largest naturally occurring freshwater lake west of the Mississippi, right near Visalia. And last year, with all the rain we had, the lake refilled for the first time in decades. And there's water there right now. Um, Because of all of the dams and the aqueducts and the system of moving water from where there's excess to where it's needed, and the need to, ter- to turn the San Joaquin Valley into the productive agricultural region that it became, all of this system of canals, aqueducts, dams, was to move water around, be able to store it, and deliver it when needed. And that's why we have the pumps in the Sacramento Delta. By the way, much of this was paid for by farmers. They paid for water that they're now not getting.
1: Wow. And when? sorry, what year was the, what period was the, were the aqueducts?
0: Um, well, I mean, this went on for a long, a a long time. It started in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then the last significant water projects, um, in, uh, the U S were, or in California were built in the seventies. There's actually, you can look up, there's a great video of JFK giving a speech for, um, the dedication of the San Luis reservoir, which is in between Fresno and Salinas. Um, and he talks about the wonder of human engineering and how this dam is this great thing that's going to serve humanity. I and mean, they were very proud of these types of projects. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the history of water is as old as the history of the growth of California. You know, part of the issue we have now is we haven't built any significant water infrastructure since the 1970s, since the population was about 25 million people now we have a population of 40 million people in california and then there's the propaganda aspect of it which we can get into of you know blaming farmers for lack of water but of course the catch 22 for the farmer is largely because of the manipulation of the environmental movement farmers are not getting the surface water deliveries the pumps from the delta have been limited for many years to protect The Delta smelt a fish that's most likely is already extinct, (laughs) or they use justifications of protecting the salmon or whatever, but water allocations that farmers paid for, they're getting a tiny percentage of, and many years they get zero, zero surface water allocations. Well, that leads the farmer to be forced to pump water out of the ground, which depletes the aquifer. You may have seen some of the stories where they talk about, oh, farmers are pumping too much and it's causing land subsidence. Well, that's because they're not getting the surface water that they need to grow their crops. So they got to pump it out of the ground. So we have this confluence of environmental policy, water policy, and other regulatory policies. By the way, estate tax is brutal for farmers. I know in fact, someone that I know well, um, their family acquired bits and pieces of land over the years. Like, you know, the the patriarch who kind of started them down the road had the idea of whenever you can acquire land, acquire land. And make sure you acquire contiguous land. And if there's a piece in between, you want to be able to get that piece so you can make your farm contiguous. Well, because of estate taxes, they had to do what that patriarch said they should never do, which was sell land to pay the government taxes on the estate.
1: Oh, that is tragic. Um, so,
0: you know, taxation fits into it. Water policy fits into it. I mean,
1: wow, that really bothers me because if you look into like when they build a stadium or all that kind of stuff, a big part of the value, which people don't realize is that they give them tax concessions, property taxes, stuff like that. So people like, oh, this is what this company paid the city for that land. But what they don't realize is that Company is getting a huge advantage. And I just, you know, you would think that you would do that for the farmer.
0: No. A good example of how this water policy has affected the issue is one you can actually see, and I've seen with my own eyes. So I spent a lot of time driving up and down Highway 99 through the center of California, which goes right through the heart of California's agriculture. As you head south on Highway 99 out of Fresno through Bakersfield towards the grapevine, when you looked right, going south there used to be farms all the way down orchards different types of farms by the way over the last 20 20 25 years i've seen a, a vast diminishment in the variety of crops we grow in california as well it used to be a much greater greater uh, variety of commodities grown in the state and there's been through this consolidation
1: It's all garlic
0: <laughs> it, you know it's been it's been focused <laughs> into into certain specific types of, of crops i mean we used to have a flourishing asparagus industry in the Sacramento Delta, gone.
1: Wow. And asparagus takes a long time to, like it takes a couple of years before asparagus can grow.
0: Most of your asparagus now is coming from Mexico. Whereas, wow. I mean, I started out, I had a bunch of asparagus plants. My wife used to love it because I'd go up and see my asparagus plants, and I'd come
1: back with like 10 pounds. Yes. And they come back every year, right? You don't have to replant them.
0: Yeah, it's like well, they call it grass because it grows like grass.
1: Yeah, and it's I mean, it's like a paradise. Like the permaculturists grow it, and and so um,
0: as you look off Highway ninety nine now, it's just dead land basically. And you can see, by the way, as you drive down the ninety nine, which parcels had access to water and which ones didn't. Yeah, and the companies that do orchard removal right now are backed up because orchards are being torn out everywhere because people can't make a living off of this this ground anymore ground that if it has water is unbelievably productive so you've seen this pattern of those generational family farms even the big ones bit by bit selling out to wealthy people billionaires corporate interests foreign investors i represent a company it's funny the firm that I started out with, I started out as a, a an associate lawyer, so kind of low-level grunt work. And one of the companies that I worked for many years ago came to us as a client a couple years ago, and it was the same guy that I'm dealing with. But when I dealt with him before, he was the owner. Now, he reports, wow. to, a, he reports to a foreign board of directors in a different country.
1: But he still has to work. He didn't get so rich from selling that.
0: Correct. So we've seen a lot of consolidation and we've seen a lot of upward transfer of these properties. The first thing that made me notice this happened in, um, I've done a lot of work in strawberries and I worked on an issue uh, for a very large, what was at that time, one of the larger strawberry operations in the state. Things have changed since then. And at the time that I got involved in it, it had gone from being a privately held farming company owned by a farmer to being owned by a real estate investment trust, where people put money into this real estate trust to purchase this farmland as as an investment opportunity. It was a way for investors to get their hands on valuable farmland um, and benefit from that without these becoming publicly traded companies on Wall Street. And just recently, just within the last couple of years, we had Massive exits from the straw. We've seen a a dramatic transformation of the strawberry industry where a lot of folks who have been multi-generational families in the strawberry industry have sold out because we had a market collapse in strawberries that occurred for a variety of different reasons. But the margins of error now have gotten so much smaller that a lot of people are selling out in order to capture some value from what they've had. They have to sell out so they can leave with something. Right. because we've seen people I mean one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my whole career was a family that I represented for years in the dairy industry that and dairy is a special is a special creature because dairy has a government set price for the farmer it's a regulated industry it's not even a market price it's there's a complicated formula for milk pricing, but the raw milk price is set by the government and we went through a very difficult period and we've the way what's happened in dairy over the years is that the boom years have gotten shorter and the bust years have gotten deeper and longer. So like, for example, we, we recently had really high milk prices, but it only lasted for a short period of time and it was followed by a very destructive low level. So people get in the hole when it gets to low level. Because, why, why is
1: this happening?
0: Um, It has to do with milk pricing formula. Um, through the government set milk price. So
1: this, this, problem with the cycle is artificial. It's not because people don't aren't drinking as much milk.
0: it It's affected it's affected by market demand. I mean, there's I'm not a dairy economics expert. There are people who specialize this in this for their whole lives. Um, but it has to do with a variety of different factors. But the reality is all of the risk in the value of milk rests on the dairy farmer. So you as the consumer, when you go to the grocery store, when the milk price goes through the basement, you don't see that reflected in that gallon of milk you buy at the store. But the farmer will lose money on, their, on, on wow. the milk they produce. There are times, well, I'll give you an example. In um, around 2008 to 2010 or 2011, we had at one point where the milk price was 50, per 100 weight, which is how they measure it, was half the cost of production. So they're losing 50 cents on every dollar no matter what they do on their milk. And so it's very difficult to survive that. And what we've seen is the cycle of debt that people have to go into, you know, in the past they could dig their way out during the good years, but the good years aren't lasting long enough. And dairy in particular is vulnerable because you can't, you know, you can leave a field fallow, but with cows, you have to keep feeding them and you have to keep milking. Your only option is to keep feeding and milking. Or kill them and, and sell them for beef. And if you sell for beef and you reduce the size of your herd, then you don't have the production to take advantage of when the price swings the right. other way. So you either ride it out and hope for better days. Uh, but, you know, so I this family that I represented for many years, uh, very well-known family in the dairy industry, ended up selling out the farm to pay off debt. And at the end, all they had left was the, the the matriarch of the family was given a life estate where she could live in her house on the ranch until the end of her life. And the, the rest of the family, people who had never worked for anyone else in their lives and only worked on the family farm, had to go get jobs as employees for other farmers. Um, and I've seen this, you know, we've seen people leave the industry with nothing. So more and more, you're seeing people trying to cash out. So at least they can leave with something. And that pressure just keeps increasing on that family generational farm. And as people start offering them money to sell, those offers get more and more tempting. You you mentioned Maui. I'll use Maui as an example because I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen in Lahaina. No matter what they say, what's going to happen is people who own businesses in Lahaina or homes in Lahaina eventually – the rubber's going to hit the road where they don't have the money to rebuild and people are going to offer them money for that burnt out land. That is yeah. going to be significantly less than it was worth before the fire. Right. And it's going to be moneyed interest, investors, et cetera. The same kind of folks that we're talking about slowly and surely taking over agriculture in California. And I, uh, and that land is going to get sold because if you're that person who's holding that land and you're looking at burnt out land that you can't afford to rebuild on, and someone's offering you some kind of money where you can salvage a life for yourself, you're going to take that offer.
1: Yeah, you have to. I mean, you have to. So we're seeing that happen in a less dramatic way
0: in California, where the commercial reality of being a self sustaining family farm of any size is becoming increasingly difficult. And I've seen farms sold. That I thought these people would be around forever because they were very well established families. They did very well. But bit by bit, we've seen, you know, I remember when I first got into the industry, some of the guys that I worked for, were guys who'd been around for a long time, and they, you know, we'd drive around to various places to see clients and have them introduce me to people. And you could drive up and down the San Joaquin Valley and point out what families were where you know who had started their who had started their farms either as immigrants who came here in the first half of the 20th century or dust bowl refugees oh that's this and this family that's such and such family that's all unrecognizable
1: were they politically powerful at any time like how did they get in you know, they had such a head start you'd think that they'd have some
0: well there was a time when i think agriculture had more political influence um you know at the risk of offending some people i think that Agriculture's political advocates have done a miserable job at protecting the industry.
1: Oh, I totally think that's on purpose. It's like labor. It's like the the stevedores, literally their union made their prices so high that no. used to be 95% of all shipping traffic went through the United States, if I recall correctly from what my grandfather would say. And he said all along, like they're raising the rates for labor to the point where that industry will be destroyed. And now all you have is like, you know, cargo boxes and foreign registries for ships. And I blame, I think the labor unions did it on purpose.
0: There are, there are associations within agriculture that farmers have paid a lot of money into who have failed to deliver tangible results for them politically for a very, very long time. Um, and I've said this openly, so any of my my friends in agriculture who hear this will not be shocked to hear me say this. We have big, big associations that are very well funded in agriculture that go, they get to go to the cocktail parties and the lunches and the dinners with all the right people in Sacramento and all the right people in Washington, DC. And they've got their political friends. But when the time comes to deliver results, those results do not arrive for the farmer. I, I don't, I just I don't think that these these folks are worth the money they've been paid
1: not just not worth the money but they're taking the place of someone who would do the job like it's a legal concept like when you sit there and somebody's choking if you are like hey i got this nobody can help you know nobody else has an obligation to help the choking person but you do and you because you're preventing other people from helping i feel like those people take the place of someone who might actually help and then When, I mean, this also happened with some of the election interference stuff. People said, oh, I got this. And then it was too late after, after, you know, um, those they were promising to help realized that they were just standing in the way.
0: Well, I'll give you an example. There's a very negative um, law involving agricultural unions that passed last year, that uh, Gavin Newsom signed last year. And all the big farming associations during that legislative session as he was this is a law that they've been trying to get for a while that's been been vetoed. It was vetoed, I think, twice by Jerry Brown and at least once by Newsom previously. And um, just before as he's making the decision whether or not to uh, whether or not to sign this this bill, all the big ag associations endorsed his Republican opponent in the last gubernatorial election. Which, let's be honest, a pointless thing to do. There's no way that Republicans ever going to win. It's not going to happen. Right. And I know some folks sort of inside all of that who are very frustrated. That's like, at least wait till the end of the legislative session before you do that. Don't do that and antagonize the governor, right as he's trying to decide to sign a, a bill that you that that is deeply harmful to the industry. Um, so there's been a lot. Of, there's been a lot of self-inflicted wounds in the industry as well. And there are, I don't mean to suggest that there are there's no one out there who has delivered results, but I think, and I mean, I, I know of at least one person that I know who has like sweated blood and tears to try uh. to deliver results for the members of, of uh that they represent, but those folks are few and far between, and especially the bigger agricultural associations have failed. But of course, part of this goes hand in hand, and I'm not sure how long you've been in California, part of this goes hand in hand with. California's degradation into a one- party state
1: mm-hmm. oh, I notice on the ballots that there are no r s and d's none zero. There's no republican democrat there are,
0: there are few political entities that are weaker and more ineffective than the California Republican party. <laughs> yeah. They have allowed this state that at one time was well divided, you know?
1: Yeah. Orange County was, and even where I was living when I first moved out here in Pasadena, it was like the headquarters of the right to life in the seventies. But then they did people blame like some of the policies like busing for breaking up communities, black communities and white communities It broke up the communities. And then they kind of lost their whatever
0: well there's been a, there's there's a lot of reasons why why the, it, there's also been a lot a lot of gerrymandering that
1: that has yeah. gone
0: on um and destruction of conservative districts and you know, watering things there's, there's a lot of reasons for it but the end result is you know we went from a time where you know california voted for reagan overwhelmingly <laughs> right imagine Cal- can you imagine california's electoral votes ever going to a republican now well, it's not possible you know when i was a kid we had you know yeah, we had Jerry Brown, but Jerry Brown was followed by Duke Maon and Wilson, Republican governors. You know Schwarzenegger was technically a Republican governor. And I guess he, I guess he was better for someone for farming than the alternative.
1: <laughs> he aspired to be a Kennedy, but okay but
0: yeah, I mean he was basically uh, he was basically a, a Democrat in Republican clothing and and now i I can't imagine California seeing a Republican governor in the for, in the foreseeable future. so you have the, you also have this one party state that you know as we all know about the democratic party it the democratic party wraps itself in the trappings of oh we're for the working class we're for labor we're for the environment but all of those things are a cover for the upward transfer of wealth
1: so yeah, can you get into that a little bit? Like you you have mentioned environmental policy, water policy, labor policy, all of which have led to this. Can you tell me what you think, you know, how, if you know any specifics, but also just generally?
0: Well, there's a few different things. Like you'll often hear, actually I have on my screen in front of me, um, some interesting stuff, interesting data about water distribution in California. So what gets presented very often is the idea that agriculture uses 85% of the state's water. But those are misleading numbers because what they're looking at there is only captured water and they're comparing agricultural use to urban use because urban use is far less than agricultural use. But what they miss is environmental use. And environmental use means not only, first of all, it doesn't account for the water that falls on the ground that isn't captured right? It also, we dump water from dams. We just had this incredibly wet year, right? We don't have enough water storage to store this water. We don't. In, I believe it was 2013 or 2014, because we had a wet year in 2012, California had five years of water stored. If, if not a drop of water not a drop of rain fell for five years. Wow, We had sufficient water. And for the they farms? For farms, for urban, for everybody. For everybody. They dump the water from reservoirs every year for a variety of different reasons. Some of it they do because they claim they're protecting fish habitats. A lot of it is dumped because San Francisco is an incredible discharger of waste into San Francisco Bay. So they dump fresh water. That's stored inland to dilute the waste discharges into San Francisco Bay.
1: Wow, I'm so surprised because there there's a way to do like waste plants that don't, I um, think, are almost you know that you don't have to do that. I thought
0: San Francisco Bay is largely. I mean, for, forgive me for being a little bit gross, but it's almost an open sewer toilet. at this point. Right. I mean, it, it's gross, yeah. and so they they dump water from the Sacra from the Sacramento Delta into the ocean to dilute that discharge. Um, They also, again, they're claiming to protect the Delta smelt. And I don't think anybody has even seen a smelt several years in the number of years. (laughs) Um, They've done all of this stuff where they're trying to say that they're going to restore the salmon runs, none of which has worked. None of it, you know, they've been doing this now for, for over over a decade since the big litigation over the salmon runs. And they've claimed that all these water releases are going to help the salmon begin to run again it's not happening it's not delivering those results but they keep doing it um every year we dump vast amounts of water for two reasons one being environmental but the other the refusal to build new water storage so we can store additional water as part of what happens is in a year like we just had yeah they have the reservoirs fill up in the winter but they have to dump come spring because they got to make room for snowmelt
1: Wow, well, that seems like a very logical thing to do in a place that is riddled with drought and flood cycles for centuries.
0: You know, uh, one of the big movements in the San Joaquin Valley was to build another dam that they were going to call the Temperance Flat Dam to help increase water storage. Environmental interests have blocked that. We We passed a bond measure in California to build water infrastructure, and nothing was built.
1: And why? Why do you think that?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's being done to starve the farmers out of water. I mean, Schwarzenegger, for all his flaws, Schwarzenegger had a plan to raise the height of dams around the state to increase storage capacity. Oh, cool. Blocked by environmental interests. You know, the environmental movement has long been a cover for other interests. Right. Yeah. If you've ever the Definitely. whole anti-nuclear movement was yes f- with the Sierra Club. Yeah. NRDC was all funded by oil and gas interests. Right. Right. Because they didn't want nuclear power because that undermines their power generation monopoly. Um, so, you know, the environmental movement has long been kind of a snake in the grass of other type of interest and used for other type of interests. interest. They're, I believe that they are starving farmers for water to devalue their land, to allow the right interest that they want to acquire this land. And I do believe we're going to have some point in the future, California is going to declare victory over its water shortages and say, Hey, we've come up with a solution to the problem. The pumps are going to go back on and this land is going to become productive, profitable agricultural land again. Once it has changed hands into their preferred, into their preferred hands. You know, there's a reason why, you know everybody has heard the stories of Bill Gates acquiring lots and lots and lots of farmland. If agriculture was doomed Bill Gates wouldn't have an interest in it. Right? 10 years right. ago, 10 years ago people were going, "Why is Bill Gates so interested in vaccines?" <laughs> What's that all about? Well, now we know.
1: I remember when I graduated from law school or whatever, I I knew people people who really knew what was going on like I this one person from an intergenerational like wealthy family and he went he went to be like the treasurer of a company that um acquired agricultural land and this was like 20 years ago so i'm thinking he knew what was coming and then i noticed how the pri- the valley of agland really spiked since then and maybe it's come back down but remember it was completely run up Anyway, so uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, these. They look ahead and they know what's happening, and they, di- I would say, obviously direct the policies of these institutions.
0: Some of the crops that drove those agland inc- value increases have really struggled after long periods of thriving. Walnuts is a perfect example of that. Almonds is another example of that everybody loves to talk about almonds, but in recent years, almond prices have not been what they what they once were. Um, <sighs> And so again some of that is also why it, it's it's market based and some of it is due to pushing people into those things and then water has become a big issue. You know water has become more and more of an issue over the years and yeah. it's become more and more difficult to get wells drilled. It's you you got to drill deeper, it's harder to get access to water and they're strangling those water out allo- those surface water allocations on the farmers. You know in a good year the farmers will get, you know, a 10 or 15% allocation of what they've paid for.
1: Wow. Do you happen to know if the groundwater like restores itself quickly like now you said that there was possible land collapse but if we got all these rains does the groundwater just go right back up is that like super flexible storage? Gr-
0: groundwater replenishment is part of the strategy and you know I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the science of it all but there are there are people in the industry who argue and i think this makes sense that actually the move away from flood irrigation into drip irrigation mm-hmm. is one of the reasons that groundwater depletion has accelerated because when you flood an orchard yeah some of that sinks into the ground
1: nice yeah
0: if you're using drip irrigation you're just putting less water back back into the ground
1: wow that's interesting
0: part of it is just the natural reality like we're unwilling to accept in california that well, first of all, we're unwilling to accept that humans are part of the environment and the changes that we <laughs> yeah, the environment are not, are not an alien thing.
1: Yeah.
0: And if we want to have a flourishing agricultural industry and we want to have a central valley of California that doesn't flood to enable that industry. I mean, where Tulare Lake is right now, there are farms underwater. People yeah. have lost their farms because it flooded this, I mean, this wow. valley, that valley used to flood every time there was a, a heavy snow winter. All that would come down to that valley and flood. That's what fed that aquifer. So that's not happening now because we're capturing and redirecting that water. Some of it's being redirected south for, you know, for, or to different parts of the state for farming. Some of it's being redirected for urban use. So, you know, we stopped the flooding to be able to clear the land for productive use, some of it for residential use, some of it for agricultural use. But we have forever altered the patterns of how water moves around in California. And the idea that we could just, like, tear down all the dams and go back to this state of nature <laughs> is just bizarre to me. Like, are, who, who's who's going to leave? Because,
1: I mean, you live in, you live in Los <laughs> well, they Angeles. They want people to die.
0: You know, and there's there's this myth that, like, the San Joaquin Valley is a desert. It's not a desert. It's a grassland. The place that's a desert is Los Angeles. Los Angeles was not an urban center until they redirected water to go there. Mm-hmm some from other parts of california some from the colorado river but los angeles needs water to survive and it you know los angeles was was a cow town until they until they they dealt with the water and you know i love the movie chinatown because it depicts some of that some of that struggle over water for los angeles
1: i only moved uh like 5 miles further towards the mountains into kind of the foothills of it's still in Los Angeles County, but it's along the San Gabriel mountains and just these couple of miles, the climate's different. It's cooler. It's moisture. Everybody on my block all the way around has, I mean, they are fig trees and I mean, just gardening is really big here. The neighbor has chickens. I mean, literally a couple of miles. So I can see how LA has a totally different climate from, you know, even someplace as close as this. The great lie about California is that there's not
0: enough water. There is enough water. There, there is enough water. If you drive up and down the San Joaquin Valley, you'll see farmers with big signs out by the highway that will say Congress created drought, government created drought.
1: How? Why? I Explain that because that's what I think. I'm like, this is driving me crazy. And I actually think it's so that we can't be self-sufficient and maybe it's private a, farmers or it's, whatever. It's, it's what resource, does that sign mean?
0: It's a resource management problem. So we have the ability to capture water. We have the ability to move water. But we have, we have a, a government that engages in malfeasance. And I know there are, there are a lot of people that I know who are like, the government hates farmers and they want everyone to starve. I don't believe that. Because these people, you know, sometimes they're incompetent. They're always nefarious. But they don't do things with, without a reason. And, you know, we often say in agriculture that we're the first society in history to attack its own food supply, which to some degree is true. But I don't think they're doing it for no reason. I think they're doing it to wrestle that land out of the hands of the people who built California's agricultural industry and into the hands of big moneyed, politically connected interests so that those people can own this industry that generates 50 plus billion dollars of revenue a year.
1: Not to mention control the future
0: of food. Correct. And food security, food security is a big issue. So, you know, I think food is a particularly, right. What are the things that guide all the nefarious actions in the world, power and money, (laughs) both of those things are wrapped up in food.
1: Yes. Because food is not a natural, it is not naturally scarce. So you have to actually impose scarcity if you want to control it.
0: And I know many farmers who are wonderful, wonderful, like salt of the earth people understand how to manage the land understand how to grow crops they know their business they work their asses off but for lack of a better way to put it these are the people that those elites see as deplorables right Mm -hmm. they're blue collar people even if they have money Mm -hmm. many of them are not college educated which frankly is to their credit these days um you know they don't they don't hang out in the right places with the right people at the country clubs. They're like, you know, these are people who they put their hands in the dirt.
1: So what's the answer to getting the resource? So you're talking to, I I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have labels anymore, but I have never had any faith in government. I guess I'm considering the possibility that this is a, you know, the government, the pathological pathocratic government is a recent development and that maybe historically government wasn't completely against its own people. But are you suggesting, or you know, just in your opinion, is there a path like a, a better resource management and um, exposing, you know, these these anti-farmer policies?
0: Yeah, I think honestly, uh, and I know that some people will, would disagree with me about this. I think what we need to do is awaken non-agricultural populations because one percent of the population is connected to farming i mean i grew up i grew up in los angeles i knew nothing about agriculture until i got into this business and it's like this whole world opened up to me that i never understood before about where my food comes from and i think awakening the public to what is happening and how these policies hurt them and endanger them is critical to get people there was a time where we thought of farmers almost like heroes Right. And now they've done this constant propaganda, especially through the environmental movement that, you know, farmers are hurting the earth. Farmers are bad. Farmers are wasting water. Is it wasting water to produce food? (laughs) How is that wasting water? Like a golf course is a waste of water. (laughs) Right. Growing food is not wasting water.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. Especially if what you're talking about. I mean, then you get into the whole we shall be vegans kind of thing, which takes water. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so let me let me let me be a legal nerd for a minute. Oh yeah, go back to the the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act in the nineteen thirties. The Fair Labor Standards Act was the first federal wage and hour law. It established minimum wage and overtime rules, among other things. In the beginning, agriculture was completely exempt. It was exempt from minimum wage and it was exempt from federal overtime. And the reason for that was because the literally the words used were agriculture is different. Agriculture was viewed as a foundation of the economy. It was viewed as a necessity because think about where we were as we rolled into the end of the 1930s. We had starvation in this country during the depression. So the, so food production was seen as necessary to the health of the nation and the survival of the nation. And there was an understanding that take something like overtime, right? If you're making t-shirts If the job doesn't get done today after eight hours, well, we can knock off and come back tomorrow. But with agriculture, you have a window of time from this month to this month. that's defined by weather where you have to maximize the production that comes out of that field. And like, you know, those of us of a certain age grew up with the understanding, you know, the farmer works from dawn to dusk. They work as soon as, as soon as it's light until the work gets done and they got to do as much as they can in that window of time. And that's why agriculture was exempt from these rules. Now, over time, they removed the minimum wage exemption, but agriculture is still exempt from federal overtime. But in a state like California, we used to have a ten-hour day for overtime in California. And a few years ago, we're still in the phase-in process of this. But they're moving agriculture to an eight-hour day and a forty-hour week, like it's an office. But it's not an office. It's an entirely different kind of industry, and it is it is that necessity of food production right? And the
1: reality of the natural world.
0: (laughs) Yes. And, and the farmer, unlike the t-shirt maker, right? If, if it costs the t-shirt maker more to produce the t-shirts, they just raise the price. The farmer is a market controlled commodity though. Farmers are price takers, not price makers. So they're stuck with whatever the market value of the commodity is. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of lot of variables to this, which I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to get contacted by some of my farming friends who see this. Yeah, hey, you forgot to talk about this. Foreign competition is a huge thing. Okay, why? Because it's gotten easier to move perishable products around the world now through technology.
1: See, this drives me crazy. I bought a bag of frozen shrimp once, and I was living, I believe, in Texas, which is not far from Louisiana. It's on the Gulf this bag of frozen shrimp which I bought for some it was a long time ago but I think it was like five dollars and it was from China and my reaction was there is absolutely no way without that that price being distorted by exchange rates or supported by some kind of subsidies, fuel subsidies whatever that that was that you could transport frozen, shrimp, whatever that is, 7,000 miles.
0: It's getting easier and easier to transport perishable products with technology. But the other part of it is we're also growing in more regions year-round. Like strawberries have become a year-round crop. Great. You're getting grapes from Peru in the winter now. 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. you didn't see that in the grocery store. You didn't see grapes from Peru. You got grapes in the summertime from California, and that was pretty much it. Um, We have American-based agricultural interests who have built massive operations in Mexico, largely to escape the production costs and to escape yeah. the regulatory environment that exists in California. There's massive strawberry operations in Mexico that are owned by American companies, where they've built entire towns for their workers to live in. And they pay, wages are a fraction. Everything is easier. Environmental is easier. Everything's easier for them in Mexico. And then they can just transport that product across the border to California. So why not?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if that is part of the whole North American Union agenda, where we we want to—I've read it from— Council of Foreign Relations, for example, with Heidi uh, Cruz and William Weld wrote a report, a recommendation on how to affect a North American union. And my guess is the way they were talking about it, they would do things like that just to encourage people to say, see, now that we're losing labor whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I think I told you about a, a blue organic blueberry farmer, which it took a lot to become organic, whatever, like certified organic in within the city limits of portland because there's there is farmland there it's a huge county or city or whatever uh he had to stop growing blueberries and leases his farm now to like potato chip company because the 15 dollar an hour minimum wage was applied to his farm
0: the point i was going to make is let's take a california farmer the current minimum wage in california is 15.50 an hour and They have an eight-hour day for, if if you're over 25 employees, you have an eight-hour day and a 40-hour week for farm workers in California. How does that farmer compete? Forget about Mexico or Peru or some other country that doesn't have any of that. How does that farmer compete with Texas (laughs) that has a $7.25 an hour minimum wage and no overtime? No overtime at all. I mean, we're, we're, we're creating an incredibly anti-competitive environment. Um, and by the way,
1: it'll drive, it'll drive the farmers out of business for sure.
0: And then what do you do? You liquidate and sell your land.
1: And you eliminate labor and then you only grow things that you can do mechanically.
0: Who can afford to automate?
1: Well, the big companies that big come companies in, yeah, lots of
0: capital. Behind. You have to have a lot right. of capital behind you to be able to to automate. And yeah, we're moving more and more towards crops that can be mechanically picked and mechanically moved around with less and less labor all the time. The technology mm-hmm. investment is, you know, I have a client that's got that's doing a lot of investment in automation for the commodity that they're in, and they told me that the minute that minimum wage was going to be phased into $15 an hour that's when they picked up the phone and invested in the R&D. Yeah. And they've invested millions of dollars in robotics.
1: And you need much more land to make those investments worthwhile because you can I imagine, I don't know for sure but it's like a factory on wheels that you you to have one machine you need a lot a lot of throughput so a smaller farmer would not be able to the smaller guys.
0: It, it it doesn't work for it. plus just the, just the capital involved in the in right. the thing.
1: Well, the capital capital is always there if if it works out in the end. Right. So if you are a private farmer that has enough land to justify the purchase of this thing, you'll you can get a loan for it. It had there have to be these huge economies of scale, which as
0: interest rates go up, capital becomes less available.
1: Yes, definitely. Yes, correct you know there's
0: there's multiple there's multiple layers to all this but i think it does come back to there is a deliberate effort to squeeze out the people who built the california agricultural industry and bring in a new type of ownership and a new type of structure and a more centralized structure where there's more consolidation and you know we also have bigger companies buying out smaller smaller folks all the time all the time. There's been so much consolidation over the last 10 to 15 years. It's almost terrifying.
1: Yeah. I've talked a little bit about the world economic forum and their white papers on transforming farming and um, what they expect the future of farming to be things like uh, cellular agriculture, you know, being taxed for eating meat or whatever stuff like that, that um, I think, you know, the more consolidated, the more corporate owned, the more plugged into the global Global corporate governmental continuum, these owners in California are the easier it is for them to transform like that. And you reduce competition, then prices ultimately go up and quality goes down. It's always the same.
0: Well, I think that things like people are going to eat bugs, honestly, are a distraction. It's to get people riled up and distract them from what's really going on. Interesting.
1: Yeah, too far in the future. We could actually stop it now.
0: If you want people to eat bugs, you're threatening that $51 billion a
1: year. That's Chicken scratch, though, compared to the world, the global. If you had a monopoly on food, it wouldn't be fifty-one billion. It would be like fifty-one trillion. <laughs> like, you know what I mean?
0: I don't think so. I don't think Bill Gates is acquiring farmland to produce bugs. Right. I think they're acquiring farmland to continue to produce food. They just want them to be the ones yeah. that control the production of food. Yeah. And I agree. Um, and and squeeze out you know the, the people who have been there for for generations um you know look there are always like these weird true believers because i think especially the environmental movement is a perfect example of this i think a lot of the people in the environmental movement on the lower end of the chain are sincere like i think they genuinely believe in things like climate change Definitely. They, genuinely, they genuinely believe that we should eat bugs they genuinely <laughs> believe that we shouldn't that we shouldn't farm cows you know and i mean Look, the idea that the idea that cow farts are worse than the industrial production of
1: fake meat—oh, it's what? definitely not. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: it's it's insane.
1: Fake meat eats soybeans, like it eats the food that cows eat. Cellular agriculture,
0: but they believe this stuff. Yeah, and they are, and, and the, the the reason they're dangerous is because they are sincere. I mean, in the dairy industry in California, especially in Northern California, for years we've had these like animal rights activists who are insane. And they'll do things like they'll do things like show up, they'll do things like show up at um, a ranch and steal calves off the ranch. And the calves end up dying. Of course. Because, <laughs> but they're sincere. they're yeah. they're deranged, but they're sincere. The cynicism is the next level up. The people that are using these folks as their tools, you know, Obama, with two beachfront mansions talking about climate change and rising sea levels, right? Obama knows (laughs) that it's bullshit, but the people who hear his message believe it. And then they act on behalf of an agenda that then serves the growth of someone like that's wealth. The example that I wanted to point out to you of where I think we can build and educate and create progress with the sort of non-agricultural public is one that actually just came up the other day so there's a there's an uh area of california where there are dairy and cattle farms that are on federal land federally protected land that's managed by the park service and the farmers there operate pursuant to leases and um it's been in dispute for a long time because environmental folks want to push these people out there was a dispute for a number of years over environmental impact statements and what kind of leases were these folks going to have and that got resolved with um, the National Park Service deciding that these folks could stay. A lawsuit was filed last year to try to force the Park Service to redo that environmental impact statement because they're saying they didn't appropriately consider the damaging pe- part of these cows being there. Um, the um, The interesting the interesting part of it is the original environmental impact statement that they are, that they are challenging the original environmental impact statement that they are, that they are challenging accounted for the fact that these are all organic, uh, organic cattle producers and organic dairy farms. And what these cows do in this area is really land management and fire mitigation. Cause they eat the grasses, they graze wow. on the ground. And Gosh. these farmers literally go out by hand and pick, these thistles and other invasive dangerous plants because wow. it's organic, they're not spraying for it. They're picking it by hand right. and weeding and weeding by hand and that that serves a fire pre- uh, prevention function. And then you think about a place like Maui where what part of what happened there is the agriculture shut down, right? Sugar cane became no longer profitable enough to have there. Mm-hmm. The sugar cane plantation shut down and the grasslands overgrew without any land management wow it gave fuel to the fire and this is the pattern by the way that we've seen in a lot of these wildfires regardless of how they start and i agree with you we have a lot of arson in these cases but what happened in the paradise fire in the rim fire the santa rosa fire all these yeah, you're just talking
1: wildfires. about the fuel regardless of yeah,
0: start fuel. fuel and the fuel grows because of failure of land management well Which here we would
1: have, just fall out naturally from using the land to its highest and best purpose
0: exactly So here we have farmers fulfilling that land management function. And I think there's an opportunity there to go to the local communities, to people who know nothing about agriculture, and say, we don't want you to become the next Lahaina. These farmers and their livestock are performing an environmentally sound protective function for you. They're not spraying herbicides. They're grazing cattle on the land to keep grasses down. They're weeding out invasive plants and they're reducing that fuel load, that fuel load that if it's left unchecked will threaten your community exactly the way that the increase in fuel threatened Lahaina, threatened, you know, paradise, California threatened Santa Rosa. How many times do we have to see this story repeat itself before we recognize that we need to suppress that fuel if we want to reduce fire risk.
1: Well, that's how you know that the people who are generating the narrative aren't sincere in what they state their aims are.
0: Correct. And that's but that's why folks like these farmers who, you know, these farmers, I love them to death, but they tend to be very independently minded and they kind of keep to themselves. They're not good at that kind of outreach. And that kind like of
1: libertarians.
0: Outreach, yeah, that <laughs> outreach and messaging needs to happen. To you know, to the average suburban mom in that community who's not thinking about this, say, "Hey, because look, you lived in California for a little while now. I think the number one fear in the state for the average person right now is fire. Everybody's afraid of wildfires."
1: Yes, yeah, so we were not looking in areas. My husband was like, "We can't look there because that's where the fires are." Mm-hmm.
0: So, sending the message to those communities that you can, you know. You can live in harmony with these farmers who are providing a protective purpose to your community. Wow. That's so interesting. And and that messaging is not happening. But if that messaging happens, I think the public will be receptive to it. And I think situations like the one I'm talking about are providing those opportunities. And frankly, the amount of publicity that has happened over Maui and Lahaina, as horrific as it is what those people suffered. I think gives an opportunity to use that as an example of what we don't want to happen in in other communities that are abutting open lands. That, hey, taking farming away is not a good thing for the safety of your community.
1: Is there any resource, sounds like nothing's really promoted enough for your taste, but is there any good resource you think that if we wanted to start educating people, we right here could recommend they look just to get a little more educated? Or is there not even anybody working on this that you think could help open eyes? Um,
0: For people who are interested in water, there's actually a wonderful Facebook group that's public that people can join. It's the California Water for Food and People movement. It's on Facebook, and one of the things that I love about the messaging there is that they're all about – there's enough water for all of us. The government is wow, – the there's so enough cool. water for – for. because a lot of this is pitting – like this is what government does, right? They pit the people in urban areas yes. against the farmers. And what they're doing – the, a lot of the messaging there is, no, there's enough water for us. It's the government that's the problem. There's enough water for urban use. You can water your lawn. You can have your swimming pool. You can have your grass. There's enough water for that. But there's also enough water for farmers to grow food for you. The problem is the government is stealing from both of us. a great resource. There's another Facebook page group called My Job Depends on Ag, which is a wonderful grassroots group that started amongst California agriculture. They actually have a, um, a PBS television series that you can watch. Really? You'll see me in the labor episode that they did a couple of years ago. I, I appeared in that, but they've done um, a lot of stuff from the farmer's eye view. Oh, that's um, great. It's a, it's a, all based out of agricultural areas. And the guy who's one of the people, there's a, a bunch of people that have been really the heart and soul of this thing, but the guy who did the TV show, um, became one. I think he won at least one, if not more than one Emmy for this, uh, for this, this, this PBS series, uh, my job depends on ag on PBS, um, uh, really interesting, great people. And they've covered a lot of these stuff. They cover, you know, a different subject in each episode. Like I appeared in one episode on labor, they've done episodes on water and other things. And, you know, I'm usually skeptical of PBS cause right. It's like government funded, but
1: yeah, yeah right.
0: this guy managed to make the show independently and then get it on, on PBS. And then he ended up, I think, getting the job running at P- one of the PBS stations out of Fresno. Um, and he's a solid guy and it's a really solid show that really comes from the community of farming. Um, and you know, I would encourage people, you know, when I lived in LA growing up, I never went to the San Joaquin Valley. I never went to the Salinas Valley. I never like saw any of this stuff, you know, spend some time and go see these places. When you drive up highway 5 or think about that aqueduct when you pass it when you drive up highway 99 look at the dead orchards look at the dead fields and ask yourself why is this happening
1: i mean such a shame because it takes many years to build up an orchard
0: these are these are yeah you're, these are productive lands where you'll see all the trees knocked down you'll see chippers going through and, and chipping out the trees um why are these lands that were productive just a few years ago being starved for water when Again, if you look at it, if you look at there's, – there's graphs out there. The California rainfall patterns have not changed in a very, very long time. They've propagandized us to believe that we're in a yes. five year drought, just like they've propagandized us to believe that we live in the hottest period of human history. The hottest years in North America were like 1934 and 1935 when the Dust Bowl happened. Those were the hottest years in, recorded in North America. And I don't know how much you've followed any of this, but in our recent little heat wave where they were talking about how hot it was in Europe, the trick that they played was they measured ground temperature, surface temperature. Well, surface temperature in the sun is a lot hotter than air temperature. And they were reporting surface temperatures as though they were air temperatures. To mislead Hmm. people as to how hot it was. And they, oh, wow. And they use, and you notice how all of a sudden now the
1: numbers sound bigger.
0: Correct. Well, and then the simplest thing is if there's graphics about this all over the internet, where 10 years ago with the same temperature, the map would be green and blue. Now they use like orange and yellow and red. (laughs) Yes. My son and I, when I I was down in in Los Angeles as the, the supposed hurricane was rolling in. Um, getting him moved into his first apartment, and we went to to Walmart to get him stocked up. And there were people in there terrified, buying like pallets of water and like toilet paper. And I'm like, I'm like, you guys understand? There's not going to be a hurricane here, and you can't have a hurricane in Southern California. The water's too cold.
1: For us we're just so far inland. I've been I have as a little kid waited on my front porch for a hurricane like a dozen times and we never got it because it peter's out by the time it gets inland like that. Well, in
0: California you hurricanes need warm water to feed them. Yeah. The, the Pacific coast, the water is too cold as you get north into California for a hurricane to sustain itself. And if you read through the lines of all that media reporting, they were admitting that, that it was being downgraded as it got closer.
1: Oh, I knew it was, we had a party that day. I was like, I'm not canceling this party. People are like, you should cancel. I'm like, I'm not canceling this party. Like, You don't have to come. I'm not canceling. It's
0: unusual to get rain in August. But I, I went through a news article and I, I like posted some stuff on social media about it, how they were like, you know, they're talking about the hurricane the the language they use is great. The storm lashing across Southern California and raking the city of Los Angeles and all this like very aggressive language. And then buried in the article is there was no significant damage or injury. There were flash floods in the desert. Well, flash floods happen in the desert. Every time it rains.
1: I have a house in the desert. It was totally fine.
0: Right. I mean, the flash flooding happens in washes where they don't build houses. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right. They had to evacuate a homeless camp where people were camped in the little in the middle of a dry riverbed.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. OK. Right. But this was they talked about that and the little five point one earthquake as double natural disasters.
1: Biden called FEMA out. I didn't even feel that earthquake. And it was not far. When I was a kid, a five point one earthquake. we I left. know. You like I like that too. We wait for the we love earthquakes. I mean, I obviously don't want ones that people die, but like that little side, we were like, "Oh man, we missed it."
0: Look, I was there for some big quakes. I was living in, in L.A. during the Northridge oh quake, and gosh, that was scary. That
1: was horrible. Yes, terrible. And the San Francisco one. I had moved to San Francisco shortly after that, and the roads were still closed. Well, I I was working
0: when I was living in L.A. during the Northridge quake. Right after that, I was working at a ready mix concrete plant, and we were. I got to, I made a lot of money working at night. Because we were pouring concrete to rebuild the uh, the Fairfax overpass on the tent. yeah, I bet. But a little 5.1 in Ojai is not unusual, right. and it's not a big it's not a big deal. And this rainfall was not that big of a deal. But you know, we live in this like they figured out with COVID that if they keep the population traumatized and afraid, then the population is easier to control. So now everything is about just trauma-based program.
1: One of the people at the party said she had a, has a relative who was a meteorologist and he complains that the pressure that he gets to fear monger on the storms is unbearable. Like you just, and, and I think they think of it as driving ratings you know what I mean? It's like people will stick to their TV if they think there's a storm coming. So it seems very organic to them. I think there is a higher level of who's pushing this. But uh, so they are really pressured. I, I believe the story that they're really pressured.
0: Oh, I, 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 100%, I 100% believe that. And just like the environmental movement has some sincerity to it, I think that they sincerely believe that it's about rating. But there's a next level purpose to all that to traumatize right. the population. I said, I couldn't believe it. Like, I mean, I lived in Southern California for a long time and I could not believe it when I'm walking around this Walmart, getting stuff for my son's apartment and people are like, aren't you scared? Are you, oh, you no. a of water? I'm like, I'm like, you have a forecast for one day of rain and you're buying like a case of bottle, you know, three
1: bottles of water. That happened to me in Houston once. I was like, this is not going to, be, we do not get hurricanes 30 miles inland and everybody evacuated and they bought formula off all the shelves my son had to have a special formula and we couldn't get it because they bought all of that all the water everything and I was like you know when you when you think about these things control your fear a little bit because in your terror of your own self and you start hoarding and you know just gathering everything towards yourself it's 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 so it can really hurt other people like you know what I mean who can't afford it or don't have like Rooms just balance it.
0: It's designed to create that perception of scarcity, which and magnifies. It, and it, that.
1: it's it's real. And but the thing is, like if you would just, there is a cost to your irrational fear. Like try to get a grip on yourself <laughs> because it's not good.
0: You have people have to use their critical thinking yes. skills when they read these news stories. Like when they when when you when a news story says. There's a storm barreling towards Southern California from Mexico. (laughs) Understand that they chose that word to freak
1: you out. Right. And we're so disconnected from nature and we're so, I really feel like it's a byproduct of a rich society that you get super defensive of what you have. And you also have like a little, you know, extra time to be more neurotic. Like I noticed this as a mom, like not super, super neat and clean, but people who have more time or money, like they can be super neat and clean and then they come into your house and if it's not super neat and clean, like you're a bad mom. Like, I don't know. Like I don't, I'm just saying like you, I think that surplus will create be fee- plays into people's desperation to protect their stuff and that is part of this fear But anyway, we could get into that but I but so just to to wrap it up on the on the resources I'm going to put in the show notes, which people can find at monica's the two facebook um, resources, California water for food and people movement. My job depends on ag plus the PBS series. My job depends on ag. And is, you know, is there anything else right now that you want to tell people maybe can help open eyes?
0: That's kind of the only thing that really, um, pops into my head. As I told you, when we talked about this, one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because this is something that doesn't get talked about No, And you know, the more conspiracy-minded people, like I've, I've actually come to believe that like when they call you a conspiracy theorist, it's actually a compliment. <laughs> those, those tend to be like the smartest people that I know, but even the more like conspiracy-minded people that I, that I know and that I encounter, right? Everybody talks about chemtrails. Everybody talks about 9-11. Everybody talks about COVID. Nobody talks about this one. And it's a big one because it affects, the food supply affects all of us. And then, you know, for me, it's very personal because people that I know, like real people who are decent, hardworking people are being squeezed in this thing. And I think if we can get the word out and get people to start thinking about it, we're going to get somewhere. And um, I think we can open eyes to this. You know, I had a wonderful moment of hope. I have a 19-year-old son who's a second year in college, right? And everyone talks about this younger generation. They're all brainwashed, whatever. The last time when we were when when I when we were down in in, in LA moving him into his uh, uh, into his apartment, he we, he and I were chatting a little bit because he knows I'm interested in this kind of stuff, and he goes, "Dad, I can't talk to any of my friends about this.
1: He <laughs> should come to our house."
0: <laughs> he goes, "Did you know they? My friends think I'm crazy, but I keep trying to tell them." Alex Jones is right about a lot of stuff.
1: <laughs> oh man, you can't carry a picture of Chairman Mao <laughs> like that's not gonna you're not gonna make it with anyone. No, he's I, I agree he is he is right about a lot of stuff, but that I call Alex Joan, Jones a taint agent because he taints the message by seeming so darn crazy. So uh, yes, but your your son always has an open door here.
0: The way my son puts it is he goes, he goes, I think the reason Alex Jones acts so crazy is because if you knew all this stuff and no one was listening, that would make you insane. Yes, if you're
1: locked in an insane asylum and you're not insane, you will quickly seem or become insane. Very interesting. Wow, I'm so surprised to hear you say that. That was was unexpected, Anthony, that your son's go-to would be Alex Jones, but- You're right. I mean, I used to use him as a resource when I was, even in radio, I was like, he's the only one who had any news stories that weren't completely narrative-based.
0: He's been vindicated about a lot of things. If you get past all all the bluster, and in fact, the funny thing about him is he's actually best when he's on someone else's show. Because he's much more subdued when he gets interviewed. And, you know, when you get past all the bluster and sort of the clownishness of his presentation, he's he's dead on on a lot of things.
1: Well, I think so. But I mean, I don't, A lot of people do think he's legit. I'm not really one of those people. However, you can't have that kind of credibility if you're not right about a lot of stuff, even if you are a limited hangout or whatever. So... Um, yes. So anyway, well, hopefully this is a good place for people to start. I'm so interested in this. I feel like the, when you read the food stuff on the world economic forum, they are trying to globalize food. They are trying to change it and shape it in every corner of the earth. And this definitely would be a stepping stone towards that. And it's not too late. So it's awesome that you're you've got your finger on the pulse here. And if there's anything that any you know, as this evolves, maybe I'll get information from people. If there are moments of action that we can spread the word, uh, keep us posted.
0: Yeah, I'll let you know. I think there are some interesting things that are that are kind of coming together right now. And you know, I I know that a lot of people in the industry are very frustrated, and people on the ground are pushing back and trying to spread the word. And I would just encourage. Anybody who's listening to this or watching this who lives in an urban area, even just start educating yourself about where your food comes from and what it takes to bring that food to your table. Try to understand the process. And that alone will make a big difference in terms of how you approach food.
1: Oh, there are a couple of farmer's markets not far from here. Maybe I can just go and start chatting with those people.
0: Yeah, talk to me. How do you do what you do? You know.
1: Yeah that's interesting okay we'll work on that thank you so much once again for joining us anthony i can't wait for the next installment whatever you're into we're into so keep us posted uh thank you so much and you're are you off twitter like people cannot contact you at all i'm banned you're banned
0: i'm banned from twitter under the under the under the free speech man at elon musk himself. <laughs>
1: uncle elon i survived
0: i, I survived jack dorsey twitter only to get banished by elon musk and i appealed and they're done with me so
1: how about facebook
0: um i i have a facebook page but i'm very careful about who i allow to connect with me on facebook um so
1: we can't hear your your little quips nothing it's over
0: only here on deep dives with monica perez
1: perfect thank you so much anthony we will talk to you again soon thanks for listening everyone